0: On April 19, ESPN aired the first episode of a critically acclaimed 10-part documentary series titled The Last Dance, which chronicles the spellbinding basketball career of Michael Jordan. The focus is Jordan's last season with the Chicago Bulls. Now, as a kid, I loved the Bulls, and I loved Michael Jordan. Uh, I, I had a Bulls hat. Uh, Wore Jordan t-shirts, had Jordan posters, a Jordan basketball, and even wore number 23 for my high school basketball team. For me, watching the last dance was both mesmerizing and sad. It was mesmerizing because Michael Jordan was truly exceptional. It was as if he transcended basketball, as if he couldn't be stopped. It was as if he, he played as the best that there ever was. And, and he did, he showed us what no one else was doing and showing us, and in my mind, he is the greatest basketball player ever. And yet, watching The Last Dance was also sad for me because it documented a godless pursuit of the top, an idolatrous chase of winning at great personal and, I would argue, eternal loss. Michael Jordan said, I play to win, whether during practice or a real game, and I will not let anything get in the way of me and my competitive enthusiasm to win. Jordan said, my mentality was to go and win at all cost. Jordan's undivided attention, relentless commitment, unyielding dedication, and steadfast single-mindedness are admirable but they're also tragic because they are misplaced. The mentality of win at all cost instead of Christ at all cost is a tragic tale of a wasted life. NBA writer Dan Favali said of Jordan, he kept coming back to the game and losing himself in it. God gave Michael Jordan extraordinary gifts. Some of you have enjoyed that, I've enjoyed watching his extraordinary gifts and we should celebrate his extraordinary gifts, even admire his single mindedness to a certain extent, but we must not forget that if Christ is not the preeminent pursuit and preeminent in every pursuit, the pursuit is simply and tragically vanity. Michael Jordan effectively illustrates for us something that Jesus demands of every one of his followers, Single-mindedness. One purpose, one aim, one passion. Jordan devoted his entire life to one thing, winning. His his problem is not his single-mindedness. His problem is misdirected single-mindedness. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me unbelief is misdirected single-mindedness hanging in our new master bathroom is a little wooden sign which says let every effort of my life display the matchless worth of christ our priorities are Choices and behavior conclusively demonstrate our true allegiance. And if our allegiance is truly to Christ alone, our priorities, choices, and behavior will inevitably reflect his matchless worth. I'd like you to think about the cost and grace of following Jesus. And as you do, I'd like you to keep this in mind. The worth of Jesus and the benefit of following Jesus far exceed all that you give up to follow Jesus. Some title Matthew eight eighteen through 22, the cost of following Jesus. After the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records Jesus miraculously healing a leper, a slave of a Roman centurion, Peter's mother-in-law, and many demon-possessed and sick people. Then Matthew inserts these five verses. People were attracted to his power, authority, and wisdom. Many people followed him. After these five verses, Matthew returns to the divine power and authority of Jesus. He rebukes a storm, heals two demon-possessed men, and heals a paralytic. Why insert five verses about the cost of discipleship? Well, I think because Matthew wanted to give his readers perspective. Christ is amazing. He wanted to show them that Christ is amazing and Christ blesses his followers abundantly. But Matthew also wanted to show his readers that Jesus demands sacrifice and undivided allegiance from his followers matthew describes how jesus is the great and promised messiah who as the sovereign king demands great sacrifice and undivided allegiance to borrow from sinatra for jesus it's all or nothing at all i have four points number one the cost of calculated sacrifice number two the cost of undivided allegiance And those two points are from the text. The last two points are implied in the text. Number three, the grace of calculated sacrifice. And number four, the grace of undivided allegiance. Number one, the cost of calculated sacrifice. Verse 18 says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Jesus is magnetic. His fame was spreading, and naturally, large crowds surrounded him. They had experienced what he could do, and they wanted more. For some reason, Jesus needed to depart and sail from Capernaum to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee into a predominantly Gentile region. Jesus would heal two demon-possessed men in that Gentile region. Jesus presumably ordered the twelve to get ready to, to set sail. Christ gave the orders. They would set out. Uh, set out soon. And here comes a scribe. Scribes were astute scholars and teachers of the Mosaic law. Scribes were also political. In the New Testament, scribes are often listed with the chief priests and the Pharisees as antagonists of Jesus. But here, this scribe wanted to accompany Jesus. Verse 19, and a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, on the surface, that sounds devout, but there are a few indicators which lead us to believe that the scribe had selfish motives and didn't really understand what following Jesus entails. First, he called Jesus teacher, or the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew rabbi. Nothing inherently wrong with that title. But in the book of Matthew, teacher is never a title used by a committed follower of Jesus. It's used by antagonists. The leper called him Lord. The centurion called him Lord. Even the disciple from verse 21 called him Lord. For the scribe, it was teacher. Second, consider Jesus' response in verse 20. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, why didn't Jesus simply say, Wonderful! I would love to have you along. Come on along! He sensed something inside of this scribe. Foxes live in dens and birds live in nests. Even, Even animals have homes of their own. But the Son of Man has no permanent home, no private retreat of his own to rest in. He was a sojourner committed not to comfort, but to God's will. Jesus referred here to himself as the Son of Man. The context makes that clear. The term Son of Man is significant. It appears in Matthew over 25 times and describes Jesus in various ways. His humanity, his suffering, and his exaltation as the divine Messiah. Now, I think Jesus meant to express the fullness of the title Son of Man, but in a way that only the crucifixion and resurrection would make clearer later. Son of Man comes from Daniel 7, where Daniel sees the Messiah, and Jesus applied that to himself. I saw in the night visions, Daniel's prophecy is about Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Dr. Carson writes, We have already detected in Matthew the intermingling of Davidic Messiah and suffering servant. While Son of God captures both authority and suffering, it is ambiguous enough that people who did not think of the Messiah in this dual way would have been mystified till after the cross. And Carson adds, in Jesus' ministry, son of man both reveals and conceals. Therefore he chose it as the ideal expression for progressively, and to some extent retrospectively, revealing the nature of his person and work, end of quote. The son of man had no place to lay his head And yet the Son of Man would possess dominion, glory, the kingdom, the nations, forever and ever. The Messiah and suffering servant did not come and live a luxurious life, and neither would his disciples. Though appearing devout, the scribe needed to calculate the cost. Following Jesus would not be glamorous or comfortable. Jesus sensed something skewed in the scribe's desire to follow him. The scribe noticed Jesus' power and authority, made the connection, and he likely desired comfort, affluence, and prominence in following Jesus. But Jesus set him straight. It's a narrow gate. It's a hard way. Folks, there are godless and unbelieving reasons and ways to follow Jesus. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You see, zeal is proven true when it considers the cost, proceeds, and perseveres. I think of Jesus' parable of the sower. Some people, they immediately receive God's word with joy and enthusiasm. I will follow Jesus, sign me up. But they have no root, no depth, so they only endure for a time. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of God's word, immediately they fall away. Naive and uncalculated zeal is unbelief. True faith says, I will leave all behind to be with him, whatever the cost. Back in 2012, during the London Olympics, a London man was in France and he became so inspired by the Olympics that he jumped into the Atlantic and began swimming to New York. He told his friends that he was going to deliver some Olympic spirit across the Atlantic. And they thought he was joking. Well, he, they thought he was joking, and he was a pretty good swimmer, so they didn't really think that much of it. And, and so he jumps in, and he actually passed the legal 300-meter buoys, but he didn't really calculate the cost of what he was trying to do. And so he was eventually rescued by lifeguards who called in a helicopter rescue. And the senior officer at the airbase said he was a bit naive. Now, we can understand the guy's excitement. But when zeal overpowers a rational calculation of the cost, it proves foolishness. The great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry said, there is something very attractive about the words, I will follow you wherever you go. Nevertheless, as Christ's answer clearly indicates, this man's intentions were not altogether honorable. He saw crowds, miracles, enthusiasm, etc. It seemed so good to be closely associated with the one who was in the very center of all this action. So he wanted to be Christ's disciple, but he failed to understand the implications of discipleship, namely self-denial, sacrifice, service, suffering. Jesus didn't sugarcoat things. He never sugarcoated to appeal to more people. He just wasn't like that. He made it clear if anyone truly wants to follow him and obtain eternal life, they must deny themselves, sacrifice much, serve faithfully, and suffer. The scribe hadn't considered this. When you confess, I have decided to follow Jesus. Have you carefully considered what that means, what that demands from you? Jesus demands that you renounce everything, that you deny yourself entirely, that you take up your cross daily and suffer for his sake. Are are you committed to Christ at all costs? because you understand that the worth of Jesus and the benefit of following Jesus far exceed all that you give up to follow Jesus. Calvin said, we must bear in mind that he was a scribe who had been accustomed to a quiet and easy life, had enjoyed honor, and was ill-fitted to endure reproaches, poverty, persecutions in the cross. He wishes indeed to follow Christ, but dreams of an easy and agreeable life and of dwellings filled with every convenience, whereas the disciples of Christ must walk among thorns and march to the cross amidst uninterrupted afflictions. End of quote. Walking amongst the thorns and marching to the cross amidst uninterrupted afflictions leads us brothers and sisters to eternal life isn't it a a trek that you're glad to take to be with christ to be with god forever have you counted the cost calculated the sacrifice required of you and concluded that the worth of Jesus and the benefit of following Jesus far exceed all that you give up to follow Jesus. One more thing before the next point. Jesus mentioned the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Isn't it interesting that John used the same Greek word for lay in John 19.30? When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed or laid his head and gave up his spirit. The son of man had no place to lay his head, but he laid it on the cross so we would have a place in his kingdom. He suffered without a home so that we would rejoice in his eternal home. Number two, the cost of undivided allegiance. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This disciple was preoccupied with other duties, good and responsible duties. And he wanted to postpone following Jesus. He wanted permission to go bury his father first and then to follow. It was as if he was saying, I will follow you. However, if you could just wait a while, I I have something important I need to go and do first. But see, Jesus demands immediate and undivided allegiance. Isn't it interesting that earlier in Matthew 4, when Jesus chose Peter and Andrew, it says immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately. And, And then when James and John... Uh, regarding James and John, it says, immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. That's a striking contrast. When Jesus effectually called them, these men, they immediately responded and left their family and family business behind. They gave Jesus immediate and undivided allegiance. Jesus made the cost of discipleship clear cut in the Sermon on the Mount, but seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, it's it's not that unbelief is always disinterested in Jesus. But unbelief never prioritizes Jesus. True faith sets Jesus as the top priority. Now, burying your parents was an important responsibility, and Jesus was not advocating here a disrespect for your parents. The father may have been dead, but some scholars suggest that his father wasn't dead yet. I'm, I'm not sure. The, the son had a duty to his father, but Jesus stressed that his duty to follow him was the greater duty. Procrastination in following Jesus is unacceptable to Jesus. Following Jesus must take first place over everything else. Leon Morris said, there is no way of being absolutely sure which is the right way to take the words, but it is clear that the man was insisting on a delay before he took his place with Jesus. A delay, a wait. He can wait. Jesus sensed his hesitation and preoccupation and required of him immediate discipleship. Jesus' response, you know, when we hear it, if, if we're honest, we, we might be a little uncomfortable with it. It may seem a bit insensitive to us. Verse 21, and Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. But it was not insensitive. It was a gracious demand to something much greater. Nothing must stand in the way of following and serving Christ. And for us, that means nothing must stand in the way of devoting ourselves to everything, every little scratch of sacred scripture. He tells us what he wants from us. It's in the book. It is our duty. It is our privilege to devote our lives to obeying what Christ has commanded in his sacred text. What did Jesus mean by leave the dead to bury their own dead? Well, I'll say I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure what he meant. Several things are possible. William Henderson suggests four possibilities, give give us something to think about here. Number one, Jesus was graciously sparing the man from the morose and noisy funeral ceremonies that were customary in that day in order to strengthen him by spending time with him so that this man could go and proclaim the kingdom. Two, Jesus had given orders to cross the lake. If he wanted to be with Jesus, he needed to leave with him at that moment. Others could bury his father. Three, Jesus is the master. A disciple must do what the master commands without hesitation. The disciple was preoccupied with his father's burial, so Jesus was strongly reminding him of the need to respond immediately. Four, Jesus sought to teach the man that the family of God and the kingdom uh, is of greater import than blood relation, family, blood relation, family, and more important than the, the cares of this world. The spiritual family always gets the upper hand. Now, all of those are possible. Others have suggested that Jesus meant let those preoccupied with the earthly things or the things of this world to bury the dead, or let the spiritually dead who are preoccupied with this world handle the physically dead who are no longer with us. Dr. Morris suggested the meaning then is that those who are preoccupied with the issues of death are the ones to concern themselves with burials, or we could understand the words figuratively of those who have not attained the new life of the kingdom. Let the spiritually dead bury their physically dead ones. Whatever Jesus' exact meaning, his general point is clear, isn't it? Follow me immediately. I must be preeminent in your life. You must be preoccupied with following and serving me. Jesus often used shocking speech. Nothing new for Jesus. And I think the sense of his words in verse 22 is similar to what he says later in Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I think Luke 14, 25 through 33 is similar. Listen carefully because I think these verses shed light on Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. Now great crowds accompanied him, When he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus demands immediate and undivided allegiance. That's what you must give him if you actually want to follow him. We sometimes prioritize other things above Jesus and then we justify ourselves with excuses of why that was necessary. So we must be very careful to be honest with ourselves about our priorities in life right now. And to seek, we, we have to recognize that we can get this out of balance and we must seek the help of the Lord to rightly order our priorities. One helpful study note said, Jesus' response was intended to shock his audience. He was pressing the radical claims of the kingdom above even the most fundamental obligations of kinship. Jesus' point was about people's priorities. Jesus' point was about people's priorities. And we must be careful not to swing this too far. This doesn't mean Jesus is calling you to quit your job, divorce your wife, go into the ministry, sell all that you have, or whatever. Jesus never taught irresponsibility or godless superstition. To follow him is to do what he commands in his word, with willingness, gladness, and thankfulness. The will of God is not some esoteric or mysterious hidden things that we, that we can't know, that we're waiting for him to somehow reveal to us. That's not the will of God. God's will or what God requires of us is delineated in his holy word. We have his will. We know it. We don't have to guess. The matter of first importance is always doing what Christ commands in his word and doing it whatever the cost. Why? Christ demands undivided allegiance. So I think the point of the text is relatively simple. Jesus demands all his followers to calculate the sacrifice necessary to follow him and demands their immediate and undivided allegiance. Additionally, I think there is something important implied in these verses. For Jesus to make sense in what he's saying here, for his call to discipleship to be rational, and justified, the gain must be worth the pain. Following Jesus must be better than all that is sacrificed to follow Jesus or these verses don't make any sense. These verses are compelling for us because the worth of Jesus and the benefit of following Jesus far exceed all that you give up To follow Jesus. So, number three, the grace of calculated sacrifice. What I mean by grace is the favor and blessing of God given to those who sacrifice much to follow Jesus. He rewards his disciples with unfathomable grace and blessing. Jesus never demands a sacrifice which he will not extravagantly reward. Don't the Beatitudes help us with this? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed, happy recipients of the grace and favor of God. And the grace Jesus promises those blessed people is clear. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied, and so forth. But at the end of the Beatitudes, it is particularly clear that the sacrifice demanded of disciples is worth it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Persecution is a tremendous cost. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's a tremendous cost. That is uncomfortable. None of us like that. We don't want that. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Right there it is. Now, the only way that that works is if the kingdom of heaven is worth the pain experienced on the way to obtaining it. It's the only way that that works. In in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about giving and fasting in secret, not to do it for the applause of others, and he said of both, your father who sees in secret, do you remember, will reward you. It's a great sacrifice to follow Jesus by loving our enemies. Is there anything harder to do than loving our enemies? Corey Tenboon's sister Betsy suffered and died in the infamous Nazi prison camp Ravensbruck. And as she did, love and compassion filled her heart for the Nazis. That's her story. How does that make any sense at all? Because Jesus said in Luke six thirty five, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. The, the reward is worth the sacrifice and true faith knows this, knows it. Therefore, the result of true faith is true sacrifice, allegiance, and willing, joyful, and grateful obedience. True faith renounces all in order to gain the greater reward. That's true faith. By true faith, Moses calculated the cost and submitted himself entirely to Christ because he knew the gracious reward was worth The suffering Hebrews 11 24 and 26 explain it through 26 by faith Moses when he was grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. Moses chose to suffer for Christ instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin. Why? Why on earth would he do that? Because as he weighed the options, the reproach of Christ was better than the treasures of Egypt. Moses chose well because his eyes were on the gracious reward of Christ and eternal life and the kingdom, which are only obtained through sacrifice. The gospel made the choice clear for Moses. So does the gospel make the choice clear for you? Is it like a no-brainer at this point because of how good and clear the gospel is? Are your eyes on the gracious rewards and favor and blessings of God in Christ promised you in the gospel? If that's where your eyes are, brothers and sisters, you know it's worth it. If you are to endure the sacrifice and suffering required of you to follow Jesus, your eyes must be on the reward, eternal life with Christ gaining the redeemed earth it's yours the the way to persevere through the narrow gate on the hard way to eternal life is to fix your eyes on the worth of jesus and the benefit of following jesus and to know with all of your heart that he far exceeds all that you give up to follow him consider that the pleasures of sin are not only fleeting But they're condemning. Consider that suffering for Christ's sake is best because of what is promised you in Christ. That's the only way verses 18 through 22 will make any sense for you. Be convinced, brothers and sisters, that the pleasures and comforts and pursuit of this world are dramatically less than the grace of God in Christ. If you don't really believe that, that this world has nothing true and lasting to offer us. It has pleasures, but they're fleeting and condemning pleasures. If we realize that, or if we, if we don't actually realize that, if we don't believe that, well, we will foolishly and naively chase after this world unto the death of our soul. We'll lose ourselves in it. But if, if you fix your eyes on Christ and all the benefits promised you in the gospel, Well, how could you do anything other than sacrifice all for Christ and give him your undivided allegiance? It it would just make sense to you because you know the gospel. Your heavenly Father's reward will make the momentary sacrifices and pain and suffering of this life of discipleship entirely worth it. Entirely worth it. Number four, the grace of undivided allegiance. It's easy for us to have divided loyalties, family loyalties, work loyalties, hobby loyalties, friend loyalties, civic duty loyalties, and oh yeah, Christ loyalties. How do we balance all of this? Well, sometimes we don't balance it very well. But everything finds its proper balance in our life when we walk in the grace of undivided allegiance to Christ. I want you to think about this. Why Does God's law command, you shall have no other gods before me? Does does God command that to be mean, to somehow rob you of something good? Is that what his commands are about? Taking from us something that we want and that's good for us? No. He commands that because he alone can satisfy your soul. Undivided allegiance to the triune God provides the greatest fulfillment for us, the greatest purpose for us, the greatest aim for us, the greatest ambition for us because, and here's where you have to know why you exist, because we exist for God, to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. Undivided allegiance to Christ and the purpose um, of our existence is to be truly human. That's when we are truly human, when we live for him. That is why we see so much carnage and just awful animalistic things in our culture. That's not human. We weren't made for that. We were made for God. In Matthew 19, Jesus has a sad interchange with a rich young man who wasn't willing to follow Jesus because of his great wealth. His wealth held him back. And Jesus then taught his disciples after that, taught them through that, and encouraged them with promises of God's grace for them in the new redeemed world. It's it's a wonderful passage. And then Jesus said this, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters... Or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life undivided allegiance is worth it because Jesus himself promises to bless it a hundredfold we must believe this brothers and sisters if we are to as Calvin said walk among thorns and march to the cross amidst uninterrupted afflictions. Paul said in Colossians 3:23 and 24, "Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward." In Matthew 25, Jesus spoke about his return to earth his glorious throne, his terrifying judgment. And on that day, all who have sacrificed and persevered to the end will hear these matchless words, these good words, these words that you and I long to hear. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The kingdom makes the cost of discipleship worth it. The worth of Jesus and the benefit of following Jesus far exceed all that you give up to follow Jesus. And I think all of this is implied in verses 18 through 22. All of this makes verses 18 through 22 work. I'll end with this profound quote from Matthew Henry. May it just bless you and and encourage you. Christ would have us, when we take upon us a profession of religion, to sit down and count the cost, to do it intelligently and with consideration and choose the way of godliness, not because we know no other, but because we know no better.